and I you know, like to speak about the sequence, you know, how letting go slowly but surely, you know, is cultivated in the practice. Either, you know, it, it can be in the moment, but also on a long trajectory, if we look back onto our lives, we can see, you know, that, you know, if we're practicing for more than a few years, we would certainly be able to see a difference in the way we are behind the world, you know, with certain things which have been uh, overwhelming a few years ago might be much easier, you know, to be with after a few years of, of practice. And, uh, you know, one way of, of kind of defining what ego is we could say it's the resistance to the fundamental uncertainty of the human experience, the human existence, you know, because we don't know what's going to happen next. So the untrained mind is constantly, you know, scrambling for something to hold on to, for some certainty, which really can't be found in this, you know, impermanent realm we are living but still, the mind is doing that. It always wants to have something to hold on. And we have to really make an effort and train ourselves to be able to tolerate the openness of reality. You know? We don't know what's going to happen next. And uh, you know, it's, it's a contraction against the boundless openness of being. And depending on how immature we are, we have a very, we can live in a very small world, you know, with very high walls all around us, thinking that this is a protection, but in reality you know, we're limiting ourselves and and then, you know, through the practice we take down one wall, one layer after the other, you know, and it gets, there's ever more space in our mind and in our lives. And if there's space, then you things can come into our lives if we always, you know, kind of repeat the same thoughts, then we have about the same experiences always. So it's, it's you know, we are building our own world and it starts with what's going on in the mind. And, uh, you know, one way of describing the sequence of insight is the seven contemplations of insight. And I just want to speak a little bit about that. <laughs> you know, when we are sitting here in meditation, what, you know, becomes apparent first, usually, is uh, impermanence. You know, the changing nature of everything. And, you know, in the retreat here, we spoke about the four foundations of mindfulness. And, you know, in some way, we can everything in the world, in our world, you know, can be compartmentalized in one of the four foundations of mindfulness, body, feelings, mind states, and phenomena. So there's nothing whatsoever in our experience which doesn't fit in one of those four categories. And that's, you know, a skillful template to, to kind of starts to have an entrance into this tangle, you know, of me and mine by cutting it up in these categories 
it's a bit easier, you know, to start investigating, to start approaching the chaos, you know, the mess of experience. And impermanence usually is first, you know, apparent. And even the Buddha himself, it said in the suttas, you know, he left his privileged life because he saw impermanence in the way that he he saw a dead person, a sick person, and an old person. And that brought it back home to him that he's also not accept from that fate. And then he felt, you know, he wanted to know more about it. And that's what, you know, propelled him to start to seek out teachings and teachers. And then, you know, he was not satisfied with what he'd learned from those teachers. And he set out by himself, you know, and then he found what we call the middle way, the Noble Eightfold Path, which we have been, you know, sharing with you over those days. So it was this insight into impermanence, (coughs) which you know, gave him the sense of urgency and because he, you know, he, he saw the connection between impermanence and suffering and that there is no way, you know, to find a safe ground within that which is constantly changing. There must be some other way and, and he found that way. He didn't invent it, but he kind of, um, he laid it open by the power of his insight. And, you know, we still today can benefit from that. And so impermanence and, uh, so impermanence is called anicca in the Bali language, and suffering or stressfulness, unsatisfactoriness, it's called dukkha in Bali. And the word dukkha consists of two parts, and it means something like, you know, a, a bumpy ride, basically. It means unstable. It means uh, unbalanced in the way that it's not going to be, you know, it, it can't be controlled. It's like when you, you know, have an ox cart where they, where the axle um, in the in the hub of the wheel doesn't really fit into it, and it's it's not a smooth ride. This is how this word dukkha, you know, is is explained. And uh, you know that which is impermanent and unstable can't give as what we are looking for, and also it can't be controlled, and that's the third of those, you know, three characteristics, which is called not-self or emptiness, sometimes voidness, and that means simply empty of self. So it's not a separate entity, but it's like a process within the vast process of the universe. Your body, the bell here, the whole, everything all things. So all things, you know, which we can experience within the four foundations of mindfulness, they are governed by those three characteristics, impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and emptiness. And once, you know, that is seen in the meditation, then a certain amount of disenchantment 
sets in, you know, if it's really, if it's really seen, this is just like a natural law. If this is really seen, disenchantment sets in because, you know, anybody who really deeply understands at least one of those characteristics just loses interest in the world to a certain degree in relation, you know, to the um, strength of the inside, disenchantment sets in and it's, you know, it's like if you have seen, you know, behind the curtain where a magician maybe gives a really wonderful performance, but once you're seen behind and you see the props, you can't get sucked in in the same way anymore. It might still be nice, you know, to see the performance, but it doesn't have the same spell over you. And that's what meant, you know, with disenchantment. It's not a loss. It's just like seeing clearly. And still being able to enjoy the show, but not believing in it fully. And that's, you know, it's, a, it's an empowerment, really. It's not, we're not losing anything. And then, you know, the, the I and mind making, how it's called in the scriptures, is reduced. You know, there's not anymore that strong fascination with the material world or also maybe with the inner world, you know, our um, emotions and, and our feelings, they are not so important anymore because we have understood they are impermanent and they are conditioned, they arise because of causes and conditions and they cease about, uh, because of causes and conditions. They are not that extremely important as we think. They still hold information, of course, which we need to listen to, but it, it's not the same stickiness anymore. And then you know, the opportunity to enjoy what the world has to offer in terms of beauty and you know, inspiration and love and you know, relationships, they can all be enjoyed in a different way. There is more space around it. And, and it is a much, the world becomes f much fresher and, and uh, it's just a complete different way of being in the world. Because the stickiness, you know, has, has left. And, you know, in something comes through which always has been there but we couldn't really participate in it because we were too caught up with I and my making and trying to control it and have it and pin it down and think about how it's going to be in the future and you know having remorse about the past and all of that it consumes our attention to a degree that we don't really we can't really connect to the depths of, what, of, of what's happening. And uh, so, you know, through this disenchantment, a certain amount of this passion sets in. And, uh, you know, this is the craving just fades away. Like if you have a, a cloth with a stain on it, you know, if you're washing it many times, it just starts to fade away. And that's the same experience, you know, with the craving. It just fades away, not because, you know, you are kind of forcing yourself not to do something, but because you're looking clearly. So it's not about, you know, forcing anything, but it's about adding mindfulness to the process. 
and just seeing for yourself. And then the, the fading away of the craving is a, is a law of nature kind of taking over. And, you know, we can take advantage of knowing that, knowing those laws of nature, knowing what to put in place in order to have the desired effect. And the desired effect is, you know, to have joy and to have uh, equanimity in life and peace. And it's, it's a very kind of predictable sequence, you know, which once you know about that sequence, you can just train yourself accordingly. It's like a prescription, you know, for an illness, really. The illness is called craving, and, and the prescription is looking, seeing clearly how those laws of nature interact and just kind of training yourself accordingly. It's not rocket science or anything. It's not, it's not very complex in terms of the of the training, but it throws up a lot of stuff which, you know, we have to get used to the intensity of uh, the unpleasant feeling which sometimes, you know, gets created in that process because we are going against the grain of our habits and that is not easy. So, you know, this passion sets in or the fading of craving and then the energy which was caught up in the craving, you know, becomes free for other things, becomes free for, you know, having more ease in your life and, you know, having more enjoyment in your life, feeling, you know, feeling more alive, basically. And then this feeling of aliveness, you know, brings joy. And, you know, and what we are looking for, we're all looking for joy. We're all looking for, you know, the ending of dukkha, the ending of suffering, the ending of stress. And that's just, you know, the automatic result of the fading away of craving fading away of attachment, the natural result is, is tranquility and, and joy. And then, you know, if the mind has experienced this kind of joy, which is not a worldly joy, you know, which doesn't need any, any things for that to happen, it's just it's the letting go of craving results in joy and in tranquility. And then the mind, you know, feels satisfied and is able to collect and to be uh, and develop a stability you know and that's all like a very automatic process which we don't have to force just put the conditions into place so and you know we have in this retreat all of us you know have had a, a taste of the temporary cessation of craving and you know the temporary experience of um, when the mind was just open and there were, were no hindrances present. That's a taste, you know, of fading away of craving temporarily and then cessation of stress and just like peacefulness in the mind. Because, you know, the mind has been able to let go of self-concern, you know, of constantly scheming about, you know, having something or not having something, you know, constantly under the sway of hopes and fears. When that stops, even for a moment, you know, that's a taste of Nibbana, and that's like a 
temporary cessation of suffering and uh, a letting go, you know, giving it all back to nature and just, you know, taking the right position in that whole game, you know, which we call life, which means, you know, giving it back to nature because we are all parts of nature. And we can, you know, cooperate with nature, but first we need to know how it works because we can't really control it and we couldn't, we won't be able to win that way, you know. And winning means, you know, to have a life with space around experience. And then, you know, if we continue to practice in that way, then uh, what arises is equanimity and, and a kind of confidence, you know. Whatever happens in my life, I can open myself to it. I can respond to it. Because I, I trust, you know, that if I listen deeply, I can cooperate with what's needed, you know, for the next step. And, you know, those seven steps of, you know, the three characteristics, impermanence, suffering or stress or unsatisfactoriness and emptiness, you know, lead to disenchantment. And the disenchantment, you know, results in this passion in fading away of craving. And the fading away of craving results in the cessation or in the ending of, of dukkha, of suffering, sometimes temporarily. And for somebody who is completely realized, it's, it's a permanent ending of suffering. But there might be still pain and hunger and illness and old age, but there's no suffering on top of it. And then this cessation, you know, of suffering uh, is, is the result of, of letting go, of relinquishment, giving it back to nature. And, you know, this, the process simply starts by adding mindfulness to what's happening in the present moment. And then through adding mindfulness, you know, the world of our mind and of our experience starts to reveal itself to us. And then, you know, by seeing the way things are, we feel energized, you know, because we, we see there's a way out of the suffering. And then when we feel energized, joy comes in. And when joy comes in, you know, the mind starts to get tranquil. And if the mind is tranquil, it can focus, it becomes stable. And if the mind is stable, equanimity arises. And you know, if equanimity arises, then there is more capacity for adding mindfulness to your experience because there's a stability of mind. And then you know, there's more understanding and it's like a spiral you know, which goes deeper and deeper into reality. And those you know, seven contemplations I was mentioning, you know, they are resulting in the, what's called the seven, uh, seven factors of enlightenment, which I've just been mentioning, mindfulness, and then, you know, understanding how nature works, feeling energized through that understanding, you know, joy arises because of feeling energized, and then 
because there's joy, the mind is satisfied and the mind starts to get tranquil. And when the mind is tranquil, you know, it, it is stable and it can focus. And if the mind is stable, there's equanimity. And if there's equanimity and stability, there's more capacity for mindfulness. And then the whole circle goes deeper and deeper into reality and it, it kind of starts to become apparent. And it's just, it's like you see a map in front of you. And if you see that map, you know, you can, you can take advantage of knowing where you're going, basically. And making choices, the right choices, turn the right corners, not the wrong ones. Because you understand. And, you know, the meditation practice is basically, you know, the technology, we can say, you know, to to start to take an interest into the, this map, you know, which is anybody who wants to know about this map and starts looking, you know, with the right intention and with the right uh, instruction, basic instructions, which doesn't need to be much learning or anything, just the basic things in which we have been sharing here over those five days, that everything what is needed is in there, you know. And then just, you know, keep on um, going into the depths of what's happening in the present moment. We don't need any extra special experiences in order to, you know, realize the way things are. Whatever is happening is, is the right thing. Otherwise it wouldn't happen. And, you know, the only really kind of difficult point about that whole system, if you want to call it, or that whole endeavor is is kind of how much unpleasant feeling can you take, really. That, you know, this is what is different for, for different people. Because the more unpleasant feeling you can, you know, have the resilience for, the quicker you're going to probably be on the path. Because this is what we need to learn, not necessarily, you know, overwhelming unpleasant feeling, but like, how, with how much boredom can you cope, you know, or how much uh, uncertainty, you know, this feeling, this nauseating feeling of uncertainty, how much can you tolerate of that, you know, and then what reveals itself is always in, in relation to the, to the resilience we have, you know, to be able to stay steady and not shut down and kind of, you know, escape into the countless habits, you know, we have developed over lifetimes, or at least over this lifetime. So I just kind of mentioned one more time the sequence, you know, seeing the three characteristics, disenchantment arises, and if there's disenchantment, then... um, Dispassion sets in, you know, fading away of craving. And if craving fades away, there's a cessation of suffering, of stress. And if there's cessation of suffering and stress, it's very easy to relinquish, you know, because we, we see we are not dependent on having it exactly the way we think it has to be. There's a relinquishment and, a, a, you know, kind of, trusting in the process, throwing it all back to nature. And 
you know, that's the seven stages of the sequence, you know, of how insight is cultivated. And as a personal experience, it starts with adding mindfulness to what is already happening. And then, you know, going through those seven factors of enlightenment, which are the path to enlightenment, and at the same time, they also constitute what the experience of enlightenment would be. And, you know, and the kind of last of those seven factors is equanimity, which is a very powerful emotion and a positive emotion, and also one of the Brahma-viharas. And not to be uh, confused with, um, what's the word? Apathy, yeah. Not to be confused with apathy or indifference. Equanimity, you know, it's informed by metta, karuna and mudita, by loving kindness or friendliness, compassion and um, sympathetic joy. But it has the capacity to just let let things be the way they are and at the same time, you know, try to do what we can to make it better for all sentient beings, including ourselves. So I just uh, wanted to mention those. And, you know, this equanimity is really together with mindfulness is the backbone of the practice, equanimity and mindfulness. So, you know, if you sometimes use, you know, kind of a bit lost, so just remember equanimity and mindfulness, they are the most important ingredients, you know, in order to go into the depths and escaping into reality rather than from it. So now we have another 10 minutes or so for sitting.
जैसे कि योगा एंड ग्रुप प्रैक्टिस डिस्कशंस एंड वॉकिंग मेडिटेशन एंड प्लीज यू नो डोंट फॉरगेट टू टेक अ लुक एट द एयरपोर्ट शटल लिस्ट ऑन द बुलेटिन बोर्ड एंड देन यू नो वी सी यू बैक हियर एट Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.